Hi, everybody. It is really good to be back with you today. Uh, if you don't know me or if you haven't recognized me, um, chances are uh, you haven't seen me in three months or ever. So uh, it's good to see you. It's good to be back. Um, I have proof or I have a reason why I haven't been here, and I wanted to share that with you. Uh, and so on October 21st, many of you knew that my wife, Shannon, was pregnant. And so this is what we got to celebrate. This is Judah David. So this is our little boy. He's very fun and special and sweet, except between the hours of 12 and 6 a.m. So we're learning. I'm tired. He said to tell me, or he told me to tell you all hello at about 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the morning. I lost track of time. Uh, but he's doing well. Shan's doing well. And we all planned on being here today. But as you parents in the room know, sometimes that just doesn't work out. So I'm here. You will see him probably next time. Um, but all is well. We're doing well. And I just, I want you to know, I've missed you. It's been three months now since I've been here and it's good to just be back. So uh, we're just going to jump right in today. If you have your Bibles, open them up. Uh, we're in Exodus 17. And uh, we're going to jump around just a little bit in the Old Testament, but I want to recap the story of the Exodus. And so you have the Israelites. The Israelites are in Egypt. They're enslaved, uh, and they're under the Egyptian rule. And so Pharaoh and Pharaoh's leaders are harsh on the Israelites. And so they're, they're forced to work and long hours and no pay, and they're enslaved. And so God, speaking to his people and speaking through Moses, says, I want to rescue my Israelites out of Egypt, out of captivity, out of slavery. For the past 400 years, I'm going to redeem them out of Egypt. And so God, using Moses, talks to, to Pharaoh, and he says, let my people go. And a series of tests and a series of plagues, Pharaoh finally releases his grip and lets them go. And so the Israelites... And it's not, I just have to be transparent with you, it's not super clear how many Israelites actually were in Egypt that left. One account says there were 600,000 men. So 600,000 men, and that doesn't include women and children. Others have said, you know, the, the way that it translates men, it says men on foot. It could mean something else. So maybe some, some scholars, maybe more conservatives say, could be 6,000 men plus women and children. But I just want to give you a, a perspective. Here's a range, okay? So 6,000 men up to 600,000 men plus all of their wives and children. We're talking about a big group of people. And if any of you are leaders, maybe in, in the public world, business world, whatever, you know, to get a group of people that big to do anything takes forever. Am I right? So this is what happens is, is Moses leads the people out of Egypt and they're in the wilderness. They're being led by the spirit of God and Pharaoh changes his mind. And so Pharaoh sends his army and men on chariots and horses and they pursue them and they come up to, and you guys know the story, the Red Sea. And this is a satellite view of the Red Sea. Red Sea isn't, isn't some creek. It's a huge body of water. And God speaks to Moses. And Moses is now trapped between an enemy that wants to destroy him and a body of water. And they're stuck. And God says, raise your staff. And Moses does what he says. He raises his staff and the waters part and the Israelites cross on dry land. Imagine being one of the Israelites as you're being led out into the wilderness and you start seeing these crazy acts of God right in your midst. And so they pass on dry ground and the wind stops and the water consumes all of the Egyptians that came to, to, to captivate them again. And so they're all dead and God leads the Israelites into the wilderness and he promised them, I'm going to lead you to the promised land. Shortly after, 
shortly after, this is like two stories in, um, Exodus 17, the people start complaining to Moses because they're thirsty. And so the wilderness, it's a desert. We're in the Middle East. There's no water. And so they say, we're thirsty. We want water. Where is the water? And they start grumbling and getting upset at Moses. And this is what they say here. Or this is what it says, Exodus 17. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff which you struck the Nile and go. So I'm having some fun today, guys. I brought some props. So I just want to hold the staff. This is my staff. You like it? This is in my backyard. (laughs) He said, I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. Is that crazy or what? Here we are in the middle of the desert. And there's just some honking rock. And God says, Moses, take the staff, the same staff that as you led the Israelites out of Egypt, he said, you raise it up and the waters parted. He said, I want you to take that same staff and come over and strike the rock. And Moses does just that and the water burst forth out of the rock. Imagine yourself, you're one of the Israelites, you're there and you're watching this and you're going, huh? Is there a hose underneath it? Is there some hidden well? And Moses comes up and he strikes the rock and it breaks and water bursts forth. But this, and this is what it says right after. So Moses did this in sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place Massa and Meribah. And it's, it's easy for us, guys, just as we lead or like as we read this in today's culture, Massa and Meribah, it's just, okay, Moses gave it a name. They're in the wilderness. No one else gave it this name. But Massa and Meribah, Massa means this, testing. And Meribah means quarreling. It was this place where the Israelites were tested and fought. And it became this pivotal moment in their history. But Moses demonstrates God's provision by striking the rock and water comes out and meets the very need that the Israelite people have. This is why this is such a cool story. Because the Israelites spent 40 years in the wilderness. About 38 years later, a similar situation happens. And over the last 38 years, God had provided for the Israelites in unbelievable ways. He provided manna, this like bread or honey, or it was like like a Krispy Kreme donut that came from the sky. And he fed every person every day just for what they needed for the day. And so it would rain down from heaven or they would complain and they'd say, we want meat, give us meat. And so God gave them quail, a bird. And so they would eat and they would eat to their fill and they were being provided for, they weren't farming, they weren't grocery shopping. God was just giving and giving and giving. He said, I'll take care of you and I'll provide for you. So for 38 years, thousands and thousands and thousands of people are eating out of the very hand of God and drinking the water that he provided through supernatural means. So 38 years later, this is what happens. In Numbers 20, it says, In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There, Miriam died and was buried. Now, there was no what? Water. There was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses, and then Moses' brother Aaron. They quarreled. Remember quarrel? 
Meribah, they quarreled with Moses and said, if only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, and pay attention, what he says is so important. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. Does he say hit the rock? What does he say? Speak to the rock and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. And just as a side note, think about how much water is needed to feed thousands of people and all of their livestock. You just have a mental picture. You can't fit it in your house. I mean, it's just, it's so much. God says, speak and it'll happen. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock. And Moses said to them, and listen to his tone. Listen to the way that he says this. Listen, you rebels, must we... We bring you water out of this rock. Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock one, twice. It's a little harder than I anticipated. <laughs> I knew it was going to break too. He struck it twice with his staff. Water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. Isn't it true that oftentimes the wilderness, seasons of hardship, seasons of struggle, seasons of need, seasons of pain, seasons of doubt often bring up the worst in us? The frustration that we see with Moses. I mean, you can just, just picture it. Here's, he's an old man. Now he had led them through the wilderness for 40 years. And even before that, he was an old man. He's tired. He's cranky. He's fed up. And the people complain and complain and complain. And his frustration comes out in front of the people in the way that God wanted to provide for his people. I just think about seasons of my own life, and maybe you can think of yours too, but seasons of hardship or pain or struggle that we just carry and we're just tired and we're just over it and we lose our patience. And we, you know, this testing, when testing comes, we just don't do well. And so this is what happens with the Israelites and what happens with Moses. And Moses didn't listen to what God had told him to do. And, and, and listen to what he said to, must we provide? Not God. Must me and my brother provide water for you again? And out of his anger and out of his frustration and out of his doubt comes and he strikes the rock. Because why? It happened before. 
It's one thing to hit a rock and something happens and you experience God's provision and it's crazy. But then when God says, just speak to it and it'll happen, this seed of doubt that takes root plays itself out in such a different way. And what we're going to see is there's consequences. This scene in Israel's history was so important, it was marked all throughout history. That, that King David hundreds of years later or thousands, I don't have a timeline in my head, whatever it was, so far removed and years later would refer back to Meribah and Massa. The season of testing for Israelites and between their relationship with God, they, they kept recounting it. Ezekiel mentioned it. David mentioned it in three different Psalms. It's mentioned in three books of the Torah, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And every Jew would have those five memorized. They recounted it over and over and over. And it was such a significant piece of their history. Why? Why did it keep coming up? Why did they keep bringing it up? Why did future leaders refer back to this one moment, this one lapse, this one doubt? And we're just going to unpack that together for a couple minutes today. In Matthew 4, this is what the whole series is based on. Jesus is led into the wilderness to be tested. Massa. Jesus is led in the wilderness. And so just, I want to put the pieces together for you just a little bit today, or maybe zoom out so we can see Jesus' temptations in the view or in the broad perspective of history. Jesus is led out into the wilderness for how many days? 40 days. How many years was Israel in the desert? 40 years. Are you seeing the parallels? They're intentional. Jesus is led by the spirit out into the wilderness to be tested. And wilderness, uh, uh, we've heard some feedback from some of you, and this is such a good uh, point of contention, I think. I need to address it. Wilderness in the Bible, uh, you'll hear me, I'll keep referring to wilderness over and over, but wilderness in the Bible is referred to three different ways, uh, and they're, it looks like this. First one is this. The wilderness is a place of testing, so that's the, the massa, massa, place of testing. The second is a habitation of demons, so just think about this or think about this in your life or think about this in the life of Israel, this place where, where demons exist or demons rule or demons are in charge and particularly in this season of testing for Jesus, he's led out into the wilderness to be tempted by who? Satan. So habitation of demons. But then the last one, it's just this twist and it's different, but the wilderness is also a place of divine comfort. If you're a hunter in the room, maybe you identify and you're like, yes, when I'm in the wilderness, that's just where I feel God. That's where I experience him. That's where I connect. This is, this is true for me. I've been hunting all weekend. And just when I'm there, it's like, oh, this place of divine comfort. But as we think about our lives or we think about the three different ways that wilderness is used in scripture, this particular passage has all three. It's a place where Jesus is led to be tested it's a place where Satan rules and is in charge and is allowed to test Jesus. And it's also a place of divine comfort. So let's read it together. We're going to be Matthew 4, starting in verse 5. And it says this. It says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written... 
drum roll. He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Satan is crafty, isn't he? He's crafty. We've seen him do this before. And the way that he starts questions or the way he starts testing or temptation is by imposing a question that causes what? Doubt. He says, if you are the son of God, if you are who you say you are, then throw yourself off this point. And it would make sense or it would be fun if we could see what that point was. So there's two possible like locations for what this was. This is the temple in Jerusalem. So if you can see the yellow dome part, that was considered the highest part of the temple. There was nothing higher beyond there. So we're going to go to the next slide. I'll highlight it. So that was one, but the other possible place was the corner. And so when it says Jesus was led to the highest place of the temple, it could have been one of these two things. Um, and I'll show you the next picture will illustrate a little bit why. Look how high they are. This oversees the Kidron Valley. This is the holy city. This is Jerusalem. So it says Jesus was led and, and Satan brought him to the point of the highest temple, or the highest point of the temple. And imagine you're looking out or you're looking over and the test, and just my hunch, or this is kind of what I was reading, the hunch is that it's the one on the bottom, the one that overlooks the wall, because what you can't see is it also overshadows the valley. So we're looking at it level, but imagine standing there and just looking down. Some have said um, there were different Jewish writings that said it was so high that it would make you dizzy how high it was, that just your body reacts because you're so high. So Satan brings him to this point and he questions him and he says, if you are the son of God, jump. Because doesn't God say, that he loves the Israelites and he loves the sons of Israel and he won't even allow them to strike their foot on a stone. If God would do that for the Israelites, for the sons of Israel, how much more would he do that for you, the son of God? So Jesus, I, I, this is just funny. I mean, I don't know for you as I'm reading it, I'm trying to unpack it for a sermon. Is this a temptation to jump? Not for me. I'm just saying, put yourself in, your, in, in his shoes and you're standing and you're looking. You're going, nope, not worth it. Life is good. I like it up here. I like it when I can feel the ground. No need to jump, not a temptation. But here was the temptation that, that Satan was getting at that's so important and it's easy for us to miss. And it's this. Do you believe God will do what he'll say he'd do? Do you believe God will actually follow through with his promises to you? Do you believe? And so this temptation is much less about the action and much more about the intentions of his heart. We saw the same thing in temptation number one. Jesus fasts for 40 days. He doesn't eat. He doesn't, I don't know if he doesn't drink. He doesn't eat. He fasts and he spends time in prayer. And so as we talked about last week, Jesus entered in this season of fasting or this season of testing after fasting and after prayer, physically weak, but spiritually strong. And so when Satan says, oh, just turn these rocks into bread, feed yourself, he said, no, no, no. Man doesn't live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth 
of God. And so when Jesus knows the words of God and he's tested in this way, the way that Satan pitches it and describes it, he knows what he's up to because he's seen it before. So why is this a temptation often in seasons of wilderness? We've talked about this. We're tired, we're hungry, we're impatient, we're nearsighted. We can only see what's right in front of us. We lose perspective of long-term or longevity. We're selfish, we're irritable. And then the big one, sometimes, or if we're honest, many times, we're doubtful. Is God really going to do what he promised us that he would do? You know, I told you about, you know, having Judah at home, and it's been a riot, and it's been a lot of fun. Um, but the whole sleep thing is no joke. Good grief. And uh, I tell you what, I was excited. He came early, um, which was kind of why I was surprised. He was three and a half weeks early. Uh, but as a season of testing or a season of doubt, it's so interesting how perspective changes. We spent the whole week in the hospital. And Shannon had something called preeclampsia, if you know what that is. Super high blood pressure, and it, it means she's pre-seizure and pre-stroke. So they monitor her, her like crazy. And so imagine me as a husband, right? And husbands in the room, maybe you can identify with this. But when your wife's in labor or she's about to be in labor and they tell you, uh, here's the risk that's in front of you, what can you do? Nothing. And it feels like you're drawn into the season of testing. And here's the thing, you get tired. And your resolve is just lowering and now you're getting frustrated and the process isn't going well. And God, are you still here? And God, are you going to honor what you say you will? And God, what, what am I supposed to do? And, and then, I'll just play this out a little bit longer, after we're discharged and we go home, the sleep stops and the staff goes away and people stop cooking for you. And all these things, right? And so just think about this. This was probably one of the easiest lists I've ever had to come up with. Tired, hungry, impatient, nearsighted, selfish, irritable, doubtful. I have experienced all of these in full. And isn't it true how the wilderness tends to bring up stuff that's stuffed so deep down inside of us? But for Jesus, as he's tempted, he knows that Satan is talking to the heart talking to what's buried, talking to what can't be seen. And he's saying, do you really test or do you really trust your father to do what he'll say that he will do? So let's look at Jesus' response, Matthew 4, verse 7. Here's Jesus' response. It is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Cleared it up? No, of course not. Right? We read this and go, first of all, what kind of temptation is that? Second of all, what kind of answer is that? This doesn't solve anything for me. But here's the thing, and I love this. I mean, Scripture, the more you just dive in and study and look and follow, it's just like the whole thing comes to life and comes to color. Jesus, as he responds to the devil's temptation, quotes Scripture. Do you want to read the full quote what Jesus is referring to? Even if you don't, we're going to. Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. Do not put the Lord your God to the test, say it with me, as you did at Massa. Goosebumps. Jesus 
is recounting a time in Israel's history where Israel was tested and failed. And the grumbling and the pain and the dysfunction and the doubt took root and it bore fruit. And Jesus refers back and he says, be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees that he has given you. They didn't trust God to do what he said he would do. And this is what's so sad just about this story is this was after 38 years of nothing but miraculous provision. And how true is it that so easily we forget about the provision of God even if we've experienced it for such a long time. That when hardship comes or pain comes or suffering comes, this little thing called doubt shows up and the devil rears his head and he just questions the character and the goodness of God. We've seen this before. Genesis 1, Adam and Eve are in the garden and things are beautiful and things are perfect and they're in right relationship with God. And the devil shows up and the first thing he says is what? Did God really say and just the way he asks or the way he tempts plants this seed of doubt that if we're not careful, we'll take root and bear fruit in our lives. And it does so in a way that has really serious consequences. I want, you, I want us to read here. This is Numbers or this is Exodus. I don't remember what it is, Rue. Numbers. Thank you, Rue. Everybody give it up for Rue. Thank you. Rue is the man. Here's what, it, here's what the Lord said, though. After the failed test of Israel in the desert, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not what? Because you didn't trust in me. What's the opposite of trust? Say it. Doubt. Because you allowed your doubt to take root and determine your actions because you doubted me. Because you didn't trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land that I've given them. And can you imagine being Moses at this point? And the weight of his sin that just hits him. And he goes, for 40 years, I'm in the wilderness, I've been tested, God has provided, but I allowed doubt to creep into my heart and the consequences. And this is, this is why, don't just hear this. God isn't punishing Moses to really stick it to the man. What Moses did is Moses took the, the view or the perception of all the Israelites. Imagine, we're the Israelites. What Moses did is he said, do I need to provide water for you again? Did you catch it? Does who need to provide water? Do I need to do it again? And he takes the stick and he whacks it and water comes out. And in the mind of every Israelite, immediately doubt takes root. Did God really provide for us all these years? Or was it Moses? And it was so grievous and it grieved the Holy Spirit. And God said, I can't let you take the people 
to the land I've promised you. You tracking with me? Doubt is so important to address and understand. And it's why it's a temptation of Jesus. He only had three of them in the wilderness. The second one, do you trust God for who he says he is? Because when we don't, we rob ourselves of the good gifts and relationship that God intends to give us. What is your wilderness? If you had to like just step back or sit back, I'm going to adjust this here. If you had to step back, Look at your life. Is there a season that you might be in right now that you just experience hardship? You experience pain or you start to feel doubt creep up. I just wrote a couple of these down. Maybe it's medical. Maybe you're like me in the hospital and you're just wondering like, what, what is this going to mean and what are the risks and what could happen and how does this play out? Maybe, maybe just the season of wilderness is very much tied to some sort of medical something in your life. Maybe it's financial. Especially Christmas, right? Thanksgiving rolls around, Christmas rolls around, pressure to be with family, pressure to measure up for your kids, pressure, pressure to deliver expectations, pressure, 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 and what takes the hit often for many of us? Money. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's relational. Isn't it true the holidays tend to bring out stuff deep within us that we've stuffed the other 11 months of the year? And it's the people that we're around or the pressures or the, the lack of sleep or the lack of money or the lack of vacation or the lack of whatever, the lack of peace maybe for many of us. Maybe it's something related with faith. Maybe, God, I just haven't experienced you in a really long time and I want to know that you're there. I want to know that you care. Maybe it has something to do with provision. God, I have need and it's significant, and I need you to come through. I need you to deliver whatever it is for you. Eventually, we all become very familiar with the wilderness. That if we're not in a season of it now, it's a guarantee we'll be it in it in the future. Just want to tell you um, just a little bit of maybe a part of my wilderness in the past. Um, there's a job that I took when I was in uh, college. I think it was my second summer. Um, signed up to work for an organization called Experience Mission and jumped on an airplane. And I, I didn't know where I was going. I knew before I jumped on the airplane. But I didn't know where I was going when I took the job. And uh, I remember I just said, okay, God, I trust you. I want to follow you. You know, I, I want to just, I want to give my life to you. Please use it. Do something cool. And he said, okay. Here's the opportunity. So I took this job, didn't know my position, didn't know my location. And in my head, I mean, just being honest with you, that this organization had locations internationally that I was amped about. Belize, Jamaica, Costa Rica. I'm like, this sounds like a paid vacation. This is awesome. For three months, sign me up. You know, I said, I marked on the thing, I speak Spanish. Here's what I didn't know. They were going to test that. So the guy calls up. He's like, hey, you ready for your Spanish interview? And I was like, uh, K? <laughs> what? And he's like, oh, I'm just going to ask you a couple questions just to gauge your fluency. I was like, okay. This is the worst interview of my life. I had no idea what he said. And even more importantly, I had no idea how to respond. I just went, uh, can I just ask or answer this in English maybe? And I just Google translate it later. So needless to say, I was not qualified for any Spanish-speaking location. Guess where I got sent, though? The desert of New Mexico. 
right? Sounds like a resort. It was horrible. I showed up. There's nothing but sand and rocks everywhere. And I just remember this season for three months living out of a backpack, living out of a suitcase, and just, uh, it tends to take root over time, doesn't it? At first, it's fun, and this is cool, and I'm going to put on a happy face because I'm not here forever, thank goodness. And then a month rolls around. And then a second month, and you just start to feel alone. You start to feel like you, you can't relate to people. You start to feel like there's no friendships or relationships I have with people who know me. You start to feel limited. You start to wonder, did I make a mistake? Did God really call me here? I'm not seeing fruit of anything. In this season of wilderness, what I look back on now is the number of walks and time that I had with God just out in the wilderness. Towards the end of the day, the sun starts setting disappears and you just start looking up and so you're in the mountains where I think it was 10,000 feet was the elevation and the stars feel so close you can grab them. And what's so interesting about the wilderness is often we feel and experience the pain and distance from God and yet it's also the place of divine provision. That even in our moments when we feel most far from God is also when he wants to show us how close he actually is. So as I close today, I just want to highlight this. Our temptation will always be to question the goodness and faithfulness of God when we are in the desert. But Jesus' answer to the first temptation also applies to this one. And he says this, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus did what the Israelites couldn't. Their wrong was made right in him. And so just as we close, I want you, I've never closed this way before. I hope it works for you. I just want to put a series of promises up on the screen. I want to read them out to you. And I want you to take hold of the promise that you need reminder of straight from God through his word. God promises to forgive your sin through Jesus. He promises to restore that which is broken in the world. He promises to dwell among his people through the Holy Spirit inside you. He promises to give you eternal life. He promises a transformed mind and a transformed heart. He promises to provide for your every need. He promises to give wisdom and guidance. He promises to deliver and protect you from the evil one. And he promises that Jesus is coming back and will restore that which is broken, that which is sinful, that which is death. And he promises to bring life. God, we just rest in who you are today. We rest in your promises. And I pray that they take root, Father. You promise that your word never returns void. And so, Father, I just pray over all of us today that, that, that you would speak to our hearts exactly what you want us to hear. I pray that we would trust you in ways that we're tempted to doubt. I pray that we would give to you 
that which we're tempted to hold on to. I pray that we release our burdens to you, knowing that you're a good God and a good Father who loves his children. Father, just fill this room and fill our hearts with your Holy Spirit today. Draw us closer to you. Thank you for who you are, for the way that you love us. Thank you for Jesus. God, as we enter into this time of Thanksgiving and Christmas, let us not lose our focus and our eyes on you. Thank you for the way that you've provided and forgiving. Thank you for everything you do for us and you go before us. And God, we're most thankful for Jesus. We just love you so much. And we pray all of this in Jesus' precious and holy name. And all God's people said, amen.